Telling them you're a rabbi will not get you out of jury duty in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. As far as I could tell from the bizarre excuses my fellow jurors tried on the authorities, nothing will get you out of jury duty like them until I wound up on a jury for a three-day criminal trial 25 years ago. My knowledge of the judicial process was a sophisticated quilt pieced together from fragments from L.A. Law, Perry Mason, and Wapner's Court. The process of reaching any verdict, the very etymology of the word means speak the truth, as if it were a request for how many potatoes are in the sack. And then the awesomeness of saying to another human being, you are innocent or you are guilty, is far more ambiguous, less satisfying, and more disturbing than anything television had led me to believe. The defendant has chosen his constitutional right to have his case adjudicated by the people of the United States. And you, said the judge, looking solemnly right at us, are they. It worked. Her words cut through the hours of hoping I wouldn't get called or that I would get disqualified so that I could get back to my life's routine. Her words struck me with such power I didn't even have time to feel ashamed. The defendant had been indicted for trafficking in cocaine. Not once during the three-day trial did he utter so much as one word. We never once heard the sound of the voice of the man over whom we sat in judgment. From the way he looked, it is unlikely that his vocabulary or voice could do anything but further damage his shaky case. Even in the white shirt and same tie he wore throughout the entire trial, he looked like a lowlife, a pusher, a dirtball. One of my fellow jurors jokingly whispered to me after the first day of the trial, Fry the sucker. Fourteen of us were on the panel. Since we were instructed not to discuss the evidence of the trial until it was completed, we were frequently sequestered in the jury room with nothing but jelly donuts and bad coffee. We were condemned to small talk and trying to figure out as much as we could about one another without seeming nosy. There was a dental hygienist whom I conjectured had tried her share of coke, a high school guidance counselor, an art dealer, a convenience store proprietor who may have done some minor league trafficking himself, a businessman, a software engineer. There was even an honest-to-goodness semi-retired farmer 
who inadvertently entertained us urban and suburban snobs with stories about milking cows and dressing turkeys. He wore low-fashion blue jeans, a red plaid work shirt, and carried a few sheets of paper towel in his back pocket, which he used as a handkerchief. Rabbi Zalman Shachter Shalomi, Zichrono Livracha, founder of the contemporary Jewish renewal movement, used to tell about a fellow who heard that Shabbat in the town of Lebush, when his rabbi was still alive, was like Shabbat in paradise. Determined to find the secret of its beauty, he returned to the town, but no one knew the secret because they had not yet been born or were too old to remember Shabbat and the days of the great Rebbe. The traveler finally found an old washerwoman who had worked in the kitchen when the Rebbe lived. So, what was the secret of Sabbath day that made it like Messiah's time? What exactly did the rabbi do that made it so sweet? Oh, I was just a girl, she demurred. I, I remembered that in the kitchen before Shabbos there was a lot of commotion. Important guests were arriving from far and wide. Everything had to be just so. We were all under a great deal of pressure. You know, in, in the tumult, we would bump into one another, step on one another's toes. Sometimes we would even yell at one another. Yes, said the traveler, but what was so special about Shabbat? I, I only remember that we would get very angry with one another and every week we would, would always forget. Then the Rebbe would walk in, and in the most kindly way, he would ask us if we remembered. But from one week to the next, we always forgot. Forget what? We always forgot to forgive one another. And as soon as we remembered to forgive one another, it was Shabbos, just like that. Each time we were summoned into the courtroom, the bailiff lined us up single file in our assigned places, and we waited. Leaning in the corner next to the door of the jury room was a long white pole, similar to the handle of a push broom, each end painted tan. What's that? asked the housewife in front of me. Having no clue at all, I suggested we could use it to play limbo if things got boring. We heard days of testimony and examined over 20 pieces of evidence. We learned from experts about the medical and psychological effects of cocaine addiction, the intricacies of how to manufacture crack from cocaine, and the laws of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts defining trafficking, which I imagine to the dismay of the defense, includes simply giving the prescribed substance to another person. At the conclusion of her charge to the jury, the judge announced that juror number 10 Lawrence Kushner, would be the foreman. 
Since both the prosecution and the defense had access to my juror identification card, upon which I had dutifully filled in my occupation, I figured they both thought that they were giving themselves a break. One figured that the clergy would be hard on morals, the other that I'd be a bleeding heart softy. We marched single file back to the jury room. The bailiff explained that he would now take the long white limbo pole and wedge it against the door, literally locking us into our deliberation. Having a legal system at the core of our Jewish religious culture, we Jews take judgment very seriously. On every rabbinical certificate of ordination, it says in Hebrew, yore, yore, this one is fit to teach. Yadin, yadin, this one is fit to judge. On the other hand, we are equally bullish on forgiveness. We have no concept of three strikes and you're out. Seeking and receiving forgiveness is ever possible, even unto the very moment of death. The Talmud counsels us with a spate of judicial aphorisms. Never judge alone. Only God can do that. Judge all people in the scale of merit, which means that we must give one another the benefit of the doubt. And as if these left any questions, do not judge your neighbor until you have stood in his place. It occurs to me that this may effectively mean you can never judge anyone. The defendant was not what you would call a big-time pusher, just an addict whose life was a dead end. The police raided the pigsty where he lived, hoping to make a big drug bust, but there was no crack-making machinery. No lists of names, no stash of drugs, no bags of money, just the defendant and a friend wrecked out of their minds. Beneath one of the cushions where they were sitting was a bag with 11 grams of Coke. The defendant had 31 cents. Was he guilty of trafficking? Probably, but I am not convinced Along with a few other jurors, I suspected the police were also trying to salvage an expensive but failed stakeout. After several hours, we were still split, and I got to worrying that maybe the jury was on trial too. I became increasingly convinced that the defendant might be innocent of trafficking, Five of us remained unswayed by the evidence beyond a reasonable doubt. This was the hardest discussion group I've ever led. Finally, all those years of Talmud paid off. Look, I proposed to my fellow jurors, not all giving is giving. If, as you're leaving my house, I say, here, I'd like you to have this bottle of expensive scotch. Take it home. It's yours. That means I gave it to you. 
But if during a visit I offer you a shot of whiskey and you accept, I didn't give it to you, I shared it with you. I rang the bell for the bailiff. He unlocked the door and solemnly led us into the courtroom. I handed the bailiff the verdict sheet on which I had carefully marked our decision. How say you, members of the jury, guilty or not guilty? I was shaking. We find the defendant guilty of the lesser charge of possession, but not guilty of trafficking. There were a few gasps. Some people in the gallery hugged one another. I was overwhelmed by the power of the ritual, by our power over this man's life, over the simple gesture of judging another human being and finding him innocent. As we marched back into the jury room, the bailiff whispered under his breath, good verdict. The judge joined us and told us her gratitude for our work and for our decision. He's been clean now since his arrest, so I sentenced him to 60 days' time he's already served. I didn't want to have to put him in jail and all the rehab programs already have long waiting lists. To be forgiven, you must first learn how to forgive. Many of us waste years waiting to be forgiven, but since we have never offered forgiveness ourselves, we don't know how to recognize it when it is extended to us. To forgive means not only to excuse someone for having committed an offense, but also to renounce anger and claims of resentment. Forgiving someone, therefore, means you are willing to endure the risk that he will hurt you in exactly the same way again, but that you trust him not to. The jury was discharged. As we walked down the corridor, our footsteps echoing on the marble floor, we turned the corner, and there at the other end of the hall, by a second bank of elevators, we saw the public defender standing with the defendant and his mother. We smiled. Thank you, called the public defender. And then something got into me. I broke ranks and walked a few dozen steps toward the defendant. They seemed like a football field. After all, I was the foreman, and though no one here but the defense attorney knew it, I was also a rabbi. But at this particular moment, I felt also like a person who had been given an opportunity to say one thing. Could not be a conversation, nor a paragraph. I rehearsed the words in my mind as I walked. When we were face to face, I said it. Very few human beings I offered a real opportunity for a second chance. I hope you will not waste what we have tried to give you.
Then I realized to my surprise I was not alone. Standing behind me was another juror. He too felt compelled to speak. I'm really praying for you, buddy. It was the farmer. As the two of us turned and walked back to the other members of the jury waiting for the elevator, I noticed that a farmer's face was red and streaming with tears. He said to me, choking back a cry, that guy, that dirt ball, it could have been my brother. Someone pressed lobby and we returned to our cars, hoping to beat rush hour traffic.